Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Christmas week, yay, Jasmine will be speaking with Sangamitra Iyer, or Sangu, as, as I've always known her. And they're going to be talking about, among other things, Sangu's latest project, which is called The Literary Animal. And it can be found on Substack. And it's this amazing place to learn more about people who are writing about animals in a pretty serious way. These are, you know, it's not called The Literary Animal for nothing. And, you know, just just discussing what they have to say. And, you know, there are more and more very serious people taking animals seriously. It's really wonderful. Yeah, I think that Sangu is absolutely brilliant. And she's in the flock, which is always lovely to interview someone who's in the flock. It's extra special. It's really cool to learn about the kinds of books that are exciting her. And I have my work cut out for me. We are going to put those books in the show notes, by the way, if anyone's interested. I'm always looking for a new book. And Sengu is very creative in the way she thinks about how to connect the dots with animals. So I think you're going to greatly enjoy this interview. She's also an author herself. And I think you talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah, we definitely do. So It is Christmas, as you mentioned. So Merry Christmas to you and to everyone listening to this who celebrates Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish... Oh, I started high, didn't I? You always do. Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Okay. Okay. Good job. (laughs) We wish you... Oh, my God. You you sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks' Christmas album. By the way, I love listening to records on all the time, but on Christmas especially for some reason. You know, Christmas is a funny time because it brings up all the emotions. So where are you at today, Marianne? How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm pretty good today. But, you know, give me time. Give me five minutes. Uh, a little mercurial. How's Lulu doing? Lulu is doing great. Lulu is such a trooper. She, Lulu is this dog who I recently, who recently came to live with me. I mentioned her last week on the podcast, but in case some people didn't listen for some damn reason, she's almost 15. She can't really see and she can't really hear. And and she's been shoved around to a number of different homes. Here she is and she's just like cheerful and she wags her tail and she's like, oh, let's go for a walk. Oh, this is great. She really, I, I think she really lifts my spirits. She has such a good attitude. Yeah, I I completely agree. I love that you said she lifts your spirits. Honestly, she lifts mine too. She's really a sweetheart. Just the sweet souls of animals, my goodness. She can't go up any stairs because she has a torn ACL. I mean, she had, you know, she's an old, old dog, but she just seems to like confront every day with like, uh, oh, this is exciting. Here I am. (laughs) And she walks into the wall and she's like, oh, okay, there's a wall there. Oh, poor little bunny rabbit. I know, I know. But really inspiring. She just doesn't let anything get her down. So let's let's talk about something else that's inspiring, which is this Eat Differently commercial. It's kind of blowing my mind. And this is a, a commercial that moviegoers are, across America are going to be watching before Wonka, the movie Wonka, which is the prequel to Willy Wonka. Yeah, and I actually checked it out, and apparently it got it got pretty good reviews. So a lot of people will be going to see it over Christmas. So I think it's going to be an 1800 theater. So a lot of people are going to be seeing this ad. And it's a minute long, and it's just this absolutely beautiful, quickly paced 
I feel like it's a movie, honestly. It's like a 60-second movie. It's a very tiny little movie. A tiny little movie, exactly. And it stars Joaquin Phoenix and James Cromwell. I love that one where he's holding the little piggy and... Yeah, Billie Eilish and loads of people, some of whom, you know, I kind of forgot were were on board. It was very inspiring. I don't think they're all necessarily vegan. But, you know, the point of this little film is kind of like, they're just saying eat differently. They're not, it's very soft sell. It, they're not saying what you can eat and what you can't eat and who you have to be and what you have to label yourself. It does, at the end, it says eat plants, not animals, but that's as far as it goes. And it's really, I like this is serious production values. Yeah, it's amazing. So chew on that. And the people who put it out are secret. Like they're not exposing who they are. They obviously spent a little money on this, but uh, just a little. I couldn't be more thrilled. Yeah, how cool is that, that we don't know who they are? Seriously, I love that so much. All right, well, so there's something else I wanted to chat about today, which is the movie Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. Yeah, it's a big movie week. We talked about it last week a little bit, except there was misinformation that we were given from an article that we read that that basically had the wrong writer in it. So I just want to say... John Ronson did not write this one, though he did write Okja, and I do recommend people watch Okja for sure. But I also recommend people watch Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget. Yeah, I mean, I personally think you should watch the original Chicken Run first if you haven't already, because it's a sequel, and I think together it would be really powerful to watch both of them, especially on the holidays. If you have family coming in, it's a good family movie. Like, oh, look at this little cartoon movie. Kids, let's sit down. And then it just happens to be a big old vegan story with a major release. How cool is that? I love it. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. It does make me wonder. Like like Chicken Run was also huge, hugely popular. Absolutely no doubt that not everyone who watched Chicken Run went vegan or really thought about animals, but probably some people did. I kind of always wonder how movies like that have an impact on people. Because obviously some people can just say, oh, it's really cute, but you know, it's just a cartoon, doesn't have anything to do with real life. But other people do get the message. Like even though it is a cartoon and these, they're not exactly real chickens. <laughs> you know, they're humanized uh, chickens and, and they're living non-chicken lives. Why do you think it is that for some people this does sink in? Yeah. I, I mean, you're saying that not everyone's going to go vegan from this, but... Maybe some people will. And why does it sink in with some people and not others? I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I think it depends on where you are in in your life, who who you're hanging around. It, it's like a billion different variables are contributing to why it might get in or not get in. As you're talking about it, I, I'm thinking, I think what goes on with a lot of people is that they need permission to stand up for animals. We're primates. We really like to like stick to the crowd. We don't want to be different. And, you know, some of us who were vegan animal rights advocates are a little bit more willing to be iconoclastic. I mean, we may have really bad qualities in other ways, but in this particular way, we just don't stick with the crowd as much. And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Obviously, in this instance, it's good. But I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that people need permission to do the right thing by animals. So this movie, even though nobody's watching, is saying, well, that's what chickens are really like, so I shouldn't kill them. 
it's very pro-chicken. And it's like saying veganism is cool. Veganism is, you know, fun. Veganism is fine. Like, like it's perfectly normal to, to not want to do things to animals. Any, any movie like this. I think both of the movies that we talked about, both the little Eat Differently clip and Chicken Run, just, they're just among the things that give people permission to say, it's okay to care about animals. It doesn't make me like different. Do you think it's a problem though that in Chicken Run they're cartoons, like they're just so childlike as opposed to animal-like? I mean, chickens really don't look like cartoon chickens. I don't think it's a problem. I think it's a factor in trying to figure out what it is about this that does speak to people, even though it's so obvious that, yeah, these aren't regular chickens and they're not chickens at all. They're drawings of, you know, of like substitute people. But I think the fact that whoever made this movie obviously was trying to create this story about chickens and the chickens matter. And so it's not a literal, somebody watches this and say, yeah, that's what chickens are like. Because nobody's going to do that. Like you said, it's a cartoon and they're not anything like real chickens. But they're going to understand that there are people out there, people who are, have enough money to make movies and to do important things, who who are taking the time to write this thing about chickens, even though it's funny and light. And that won't speak to everybody, but I think it speaks to some people. Yeah. We have to occupy the zeitgeist. We just have to be everywhere. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Occupy the zeitgeist. Yeah. Go vegan. Both of these things are doing that, like in different ways. I was thinking that when I was, you know, we're, we have an interview coming up with some women who put up a billboard or a couple of billboards. And I can't wait for that interview. It's just so that when people look around and everybody looks at a billboard, when people look up, they notice, oh, pigs. Oh, yeah. You put enough of that out there and you start to affect people. Occupy the zeitgeist. Yeah, let's make the, as Carol Adams says, the absent referent present. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, one person who is doing that is Sangu. And she really is, like I said, drawing some really important lines between literary arts and animal advocacy. Yeah. I mean, the things we've been talking about are like for kids. Well, differently, not so much. But this necessity of being out there and talking about animals exists in every area of both, you know, regular life and art. And Sangu is the perfect person to be talking about it. So Sangha Mithra, or Sangu Iyer, is a writer, engineer, environmental planner, and literary animal. Her first book, Governing Bodies, a lyrical reckoning of the ways bodies, human, animal, and water are controlled and liberated, is forthcoming from Milkweed Editions. Sangu served as an editor of Satya Magazine, and her work has been published in numerous outlets and anthologies, including our very own Hen Press, which published The Lines We Draw, one of my favorite things that our hen house has ever done. It's publishing that piece. It's so good, and it's still available. Most recently, she is the founder of the Literary Animal Project, a habitat for conversations and writings about the ways animal lives are portrayed on the page and how we forge a more just and compassionate multi-species world for which she was awarded a Culture and Animals Foundation grant. She will be joining Jasmine right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. 
CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Hey everyone, Jasmine here to remind you that we're in the midst of our year-end fundraising season. If you enjoy our podcasts and believe in the change-making power of vegan indie media, please show your support with a tax-deductible donation to our hen house. The best part is all contributions, modest or massive, made between now and December 31st will be matched up to $25,000, but only if we make our goal. So go to ourhenhouse.org slash support to see our new membership options or to make a one-time donation. Or brand new this year, you can text us to donate. Just text HENHOUSE to 53555. That's H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E, no space, to 53555. We appreciate you so much and couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for making the world a kinder place. And we hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome back to our hen house, Sengu. Thank you, Jasmine. So happy to be here. I know I always say to people that it's been a long time, but for real, it's been a really long time since we've chatted. And I'm so excited that you're in front of me and that you're talking to our listeners right now. So how have you been? I've been good. And it's weird. I think this pandemic time is really, really strange. But I guess it's interesting because I feel like I'm kept up with you guys because I listen to the podcast. So in some ways, I feel still very much connected, even if we haven't chatted in some time. So I'm excited about being here and talking with you. Well, that's sweet. I'm happy to hear that. Where are you right now? I'm in Queens, New York. Okay. Your background of all these books looks like what I want. I feel like I need a photograph of it to make my fake background (laughs) because it's total goals for real. (laughs) Life goals. Yeah. I love it. And speaking of books, let's just start off by talking a bit about literary animals and what it is and why you started it. Yeah, thank you. I started the Literary Animal Project, which I'm hoping for it to be the sort of habitat where we can have these conversations about writing, writing about animals and how animal lives are portrayed on the page. And I think it's something that I just been thinking about for years as a reader and a writer, as I read collecting passages that I find moving and trying to understand why. And as a writer, I'm just excited to have this space to put these texts in conversation and put writers in conversation. And I'm using the word literary animal in the most expansive possibilities of all the ways, because I consider myself a literary animal, both as a reader and a writer. So I think anyone who is reading and writing about, thinking about animals, I think literary animals are also the animals on the page. Literary animals are also us animal people on the page. So both in life and in literature and thinking through these questions. And I think Literature is a place where we can hold these very, very difficult conversations and sit with the complexities of the world. And I think it's a necessary place for us as literary animals to be contributing to to make sure different voices and perspectives are included and how we want to provide that sort of reflection of animal agency. 
And there's no shortage of animals in literature. Perhaps they were the first muses. There's that very famous John Berger essay, Why Look at Animals? And he sort of posits that animals are the first metaphor. And I think what I'm interested in the Literary Animal Project is not just like any writing that has animals in it. It's how we can think about animals more than just metaphor, more than just symbols, more than just mirrors as full beings themselves. And so I'm interested in a conversation around it with both readers and writers and to talk about the craft and the ethics of these decisions. Wow, that is all so friggin' cool. And also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you wrote the most beautiful piece for our hen house's short-lived publishing effort. You wrote The Lines We Draw, which was just absolutely stunning. And I've been a fan of your writing for so long. You've been doing this for a long time. You've been connecting these dots between animals and the literary arts for so long. So... I just wanted to mention that because it's really cool. It's really, really cool to see how you're continuing to evolve as a word person. Thank you. And it was such a pleasure to work with you guys on that. And it was such a complicated story that had all these different elements that you guys provided a home for it, created a home for that work was so meaningful to me. And so I'm very grateful to have that. A lot of this work is an extension of that, of just how we hold all these multiple truths and just just sit with the uncomfortable, but create art that is meaningful and lasting and is an extension of activism in a way. It's also perhaps nourishment for activists. Whenever I come across something and it's not necessarily like changing my mind, but it's something where I feel seen or where I'm thinking about something. And it's just like, I'm so glad someone articulated this very specific feeling I have, you know, when when we were just talking about how to answer the question, how are you in this world that is so challenging. So it's always nice to encounter readers or characters on the page that are also navigating the challenges that we are. Totally. Yeah. When we first hopped on before I hit record, we were just like, How do you even begin to approach how are we doing? And to that end, some of us like to read for entertainment to get away from the woes of the world. So why is literature that struggles with often painful questions about animals and veganism and climate important? Yeah, I mean... I think there's a way to have both, to be engaging in these difficult issues and it not be oppressive to read. And that's one of the governing questions of Literary Animal Project is, you know, we want to keep the reader on the page. And so how do we do that? But I think we're living in this moment that is just like these compounding crises. And I'm always thinking about the animals. This summer, much of this country was blanketed with smoke from the Canadian wildfires. And most of the coverage was like, how do we protect ourselves, you know, stay indoors and have a filter or air conditioning. And I kept thinking about like, what about the animals? They can't do that. There is more and more writing about climate and more and more writing about these issues. And the pandemic made a lot of the things that you and I and many of the listeners have been arguing for years, very apparent, very visible, all of these invisible violences. But I think we really need to sort of create that space for the animal stories and not forget that. 
And I also just like reading, not just books about animals, but just literature in general. And I always find inspiration in unexpected places. And I wanted to share with you, because there's this book, which is not an animal book per se, but Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. Hmm. I want to read a short passage because I think it'll kind of help with this question too. Yes. And just to set up this book, you know, this book is these imagined conversation between Marco Polo and Kubla Khan. And Marco Polo is describing these imaginary cities of this empire. And they're these short, beautiful, poetic little paragraphs about cities. And as the book gets closer to the end, they just get darker and darker and the cities become more terrible. But Marco Polo and Kubla Khan get closer and closer. So that's interesting. But at the very end, Kubla Khan's like, what's the point? We're all just gearing towards this infernal city. And then Marco Polo has this response that I'm going to read, which is, the inferno of the living is not something that will be. If there is one, it is what already is here. The inferno where we live every day that we form by being together. There are two ways to escape suffering it. The first is easy for many. Accept the inferno and become such a part of it that you no longer can see it. The second is risky and demands constant vigilance and apprehension. Seek and learn to recognize who and what in the midst of the inferno are not inferno. Then make them endure, give them space. So I think a lot about this between literary animal and writing and art. And I think our hen house does this every single week in terms of finding out who is not the inferno, giving them space, making them endure. And I really think that is the importance of literature and how we can contribute. I think when we see that on the page, it is a source of comfort and relief from the inferno that we are dealing with. So I think it is important And these are some of the the questions of literary animal, both us as chroniclers of the Inferno, but chroniclers equally of the not Inferno. Wow. That was really beautiful. Definitely keep it coming because I'm I'm super interested in the way your brain works. You seem to be able to read something relating to many different subjects and kind of look at it through a vegan lens. Would you say that's true? I, I do think that's true. And I think my evolution as a writer is just trying to hone that and like realizing it. I think we all have these superpowers, which are the way we see the world and react to it. Part of writing is getting that on the page. I know you had Andrew Lipstein on in his book, The Vegan, and I was trying to sign on for that conversation, but I had some difficulties. I heard about that. No, I heard about that. And by the time this airs, that will have already aired. But, okay. Yeah. But I think there's like two points of that, like in the book, when the narrator goes vegan, all of a sudden there's sort of this opening and like noticing animals everywhere and being so attuned to that. And I think so much of our handhouse listeners, we all are unique and we have a, a range of perspectives, but we all do have this like just paying attention to what we notice and what we think about. And I think that's really important to get on the page because in this book, in the normal world that he's in of finance and whatever, no one is thinking about these things. Then when he becomes vegan, he's like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I think we need to give space to that sort of paying attention to things. But I do read widely and generously. I had a writing mentor who passed away, Luis DeSalvo, and she always said to pan for possibility, not criticism when reading. And I think I just do that. And I think I just bring my own, you know, I think maybe all readers, like whatever baggage I'm having that day or whatever question is bothering me, I read into that in whatever I'm reading. And so oftentimes when I revisit books, I'm a different person 
when I read them. And so I get something new out of it every time. What about with writing? What are the challenges in writing about animals in particular? A couple of years ago, I wrote an essay for Ashland Creek Press. They have that wonderful anthology, Writing for Animals, which I think is a great resource. It's about writing for animals and not just about animals. And I think my essay was called, Are You Willing? And it was inspired by this Mary Oliver poem, which begins with the lines, here is a story to break your heart. Are you willing? And I love that because it is this warning and an invitation. So you're disarming the reader and then you're inviting them into this, in her case, this tragic tale of loons dying. And then she's like, I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean to break it open so it can never again be closed to the world. And I think a lot of the challenges of it is, even against ourselves too, is we're afraid of our hearts breaking and our readers are afraid of it. We did this 20th anniversary issue of Satya Magazine and I interviewed this wonderful scholar and writer, Naisargi Dave, who had written a book about queer activism in India and just published a book on animal activism in India. And actually she was part of this first event that I had for the Literary Animal Project. But I remember this essay that Nisargi wrote about running into somebody saying like, oh, I could never work at an animal shelter. I'm deathly afraid of caring too much. And she was interrogating that. It's like, is there any other politics that is deathly afraid of caring too much? And she has this, this brilliant kind of philosophy that she articulates. It's called the tyranny of consistency and how we're always confronted with like, well, if I do this and I have to do this, and if I can't do everything, I may as well do nothing. And what Naisargi does so brilliantly is saying this whole framework of like, if I can't do everything, then I might as well do nothing, is how normativity maintains itself. And so those of us who are activists are always having to be as consistent as possible to the nth degree. But then those in power, the industries that we're trying to fight don't have to account for their contradictions and consistencies. I think about that, like writing into this, the challenges of writing into this, where if you're writing to something that is challenging a status quo, all the defenses are up, people don't want to hear about it, they know about it, but they don't want to hear about it. So I think all of that is there. You know, I had a friend who taught this essay in a class on food studies in Rochester. Oh, wait, which friend? My friend is Leila Nadir. She's vegan. Cool. All right. Yes. And she's running a beautiful memoir. I'll let her describe it, uh, Afghan Americana. But I think it was interesting because it was an essay that was talking about the difficulty about writing about these things. And that actually, I think, was a way to open up the discussion where when you're writing about the complexity of it and you sort of write into those fears is more liberating. It's not like you have the answer. It's just like, oh, this is really tricky. And then also coming to it with a sort of compassion, because I think people are protective of their heart, like this defense mechanism. It's not always just these various oppressive isms. And I think we as activists also have our limits and our boundaries. So coming to that from that place of sort of generosity and openness. So I guess the biggest challenge is that and how we are perceived, I think, the challenges of what it means to be a vegan or an activist or angry or this or that. I think we might self-censor or different things to not come across as what we think other people perceive us to be. And so there's the challenges of like how we can be unapologetic and not negotiate against the animals, but at the same time be like generous and inviting and keeping people on the page. And so 
those are all the tensions that I'm happy to talk with other writers about how they're navigating those as well. So that's one of the areas of future consideration. One of the considerations that really springs to mind for me is grief. Like there is so much grief attached to all of these topics that they can feel unbearable. How do you go about managing that? Yeah, I feel like grief is just this long-term companion of mine. And, you know, I think even my writing, like the book that I'm working on is sort of born of grief, both from the losing of my father about 20 years ago, which kind of started this project, but all of the grief that we feel as people who are in this world caring and thinking about the other beings. And I think I'm like rejiggering my relationship with grief. It is a powerful thing. There is this psychologist, Francis Weller, I think is the name, who said something like, grief is subversive and it's our refusal to live numb and small. And I think we live in a society that doesn't do well with grief in general. And then we have all these different layers of more invisible grief, this ambiguous grief about climate change, and there's different names for it, like disenfranchised grief. And I think a lot of my writing is governed from it. Like that might be the the impetus and it is about sitting with it. But I also recently read, and I, I'm going to try to dig it up real quick, The Passage, which was a book, this writer, Tishani Dosh. I sort of come to these different writings from different places and... She wrote this amazing essay about COVID in India. And then I looked up her book and she had this novel and it's set in this rural village and the protagonist and her sister live and they take care of these wild dogs, but then something happens to the dogs. And then there's this paragraph that relates to grief here. No one has asked me how I'm coping with my recent dog tragedy because they're not furry house animals. Because they're a pack of wild things, the expectation is that wild things might happen to them, such as being poisoned in mass. Vic had said something to the effect of the numbers being under control now. Even Rohani, who proclaimed to be a canine freak, was only interested in her two palms. It feels so silly to talk about grief, but I haven't been able to sleep. And when I drove down here, I cried most of the way. I am angry, too, because there is such easy acceptance of death, the cheapness of it, those beautiful animals gone, and we chatter here about things I don't comprehend but somehow are part of. I run into these passages, and I sit with them, and I think they're really important, like the ways of her capturing this grief that no one talks about, and the mourning for the wild dogs that were poisoned that nobody talks about, even the people who claim to be dog lovers. And so... I'm sort of like a collector of these passages and I want to put them in conversation, but I do think they are really meaningful and they're meaningful to me as a reader encountering them because it's it's also how I cope with this. So I think like reading and writing are my two coping mechanisms of how to process this. And so I'm always grateful when I get these types of encounters. Wow. When you were talking about that, I was thinking about the grief around roadkill. I mean, we have to compartmentalize all the time. I mean, you live in New York City, where I lived for 20 years. And obviously, you're on the corner and there's a hot dog stand, and we have to compartmentalize that. For some reason, I I gave a lot of thought and energy to how to compartmentalize that, because it's part of the food system. And as we're vegans, we coexist with that. But roadkill... (laughs) I personally have never come across, maybe you have, or someone listening to this has, but I've never come across something written about like where to put that. Because when we drive, maybe I'll see a dead animal down the street. If I'm not the one driving, 
I will shield my eyes until we're past it because I can't take it in. And then we'll just kind of have a moment. Maybe my wife will like pat my knee or something, you know, like, yeah, it's horrible. And then we just continue with the conversation. And it's like, what just happened? We just witnessed an entire family broken apart because of their family member who is dead on the side of the road in the most undignified way. Like, I don't know. I don't know what we do about that. I'm not even sure what my question is here, but you're talking about grief. It really reminded me of that. There's this uh, poet, Ada Limone, who's our poet laureate now. She had a a collection called The Carrying, and it's about these different griefs that are carrying. And there's a poem that is about her on her way to fertility treatments, but she runs into all the roadkill, the animals, and she's thinking about them. And she's like, what if my body is meant to carry grief and not a baby? But there's a turn in the poem, too, as this is like a noble thing to be carrying. Like the, those of us who are carrying this, it is a beautiful thing that we do care and we are connected. So on the grief thing, I remember, I think early in the pandemic, there was some Zoom about grief for activists. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because it was the, the normal stages of grief it's like different for activism because the last stage is acceptance. And like for us, acceptance isn't what we want, you know? And so for us, it's transformation. Like how do we transform this into something else? So there's that on the grief. The other thing on the grief is as part of my book, I got into learning about these ancient Tamil poets. And Tamil was my first language. And there are these eco-poets, like there were eco-poets before we had eco-poetry, you know, they're like 2000 years ago writing. And I find these commentaries about how they wrote about animals and they're writing about animal grief. They're writing about the death of a mate due to human hands. They're writing about like a climate grief, like what happens when it's in drought and the deer faints forlorn. And then there's this elephant who's looking for water and this image of a elephant like a boat in a waterless river. I'm just so inspired that like 2000 years ago, these poets are so in tune with the natural world. And there's a grammar that has an ecological emphasis in Tamil. So I'm just being blown away by all of this sort of understanding of it. But the poetry is classified into these two terms, agam and puram, which is inness and outness. But I think a lot of what they do is combine it. And I think it's giving me language for this of how we combine our inner and outer grief, our personal and planetary griefs. Those are the things that I'm very interested in and seeing it on the page, this sort of connection. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. I keep looking over at my bulletin board because there's something I wrote down on a post-it note sometime recently. I can't find it. But the basic gist of it was I was talking to someone about acceptance because you just brought up acceptance. And she said, acceptance is not an action. It's a neutral word because I was bringing up the difficulty of dealing with acceptance as an activist, as a vegan. And she said, acceptance is just the neutrality that happens before there's action. She said it so much better than me. I wish that I had this. Oh, I found it. Okay. This is not what this person said, but she found this in a book and it said, learn to cooperate with the inevitable. And so we took that saying, learn to cooperate with the inevitable. And I said, well, what does cooperate mean in this setting? And we decided it was acceptance. And I said, well, what does inevitable mean? Because as an activist, I have a really hard time with the idea that something is inevitable. And she said, it's not that 
torture or suffering or mayhem is inevitable. It's that the reality you are being presented with, that you are accepting, is inevitable. And from there, you can take an action. And I've been thinking about that so much lately. I know I'm throwing this at you right now, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, on the idea of acceptance not being something that we bring a judgment to. It's interesting. And I think I share your concerns around the word or the dissatisfaction as an activist with this sort of acceptance. I think this is just the challenge that we're all living in of not wanting the acceptance to be complacency, not wanting it to be cynicism. I think for me, those two, I feel like those are the easy things. And those are the easy things like how you become the inferno of just like accepting it and becoming a part of it. And then the other part, as Calvino says, it's hard. It requires constant vigilance, not becoming the inferno, not getting so subsumed by it. But on some level in the society that we're all sort of living in, we are subsumed by it to some extent. And so it is this, I, I don't know what the word is. It's not acceptance, but like it's, I like it where even if I don't have the answer, it's like sitting with it and knowing that something is bad versus being like, okay, that's how it is. What are you going to do? You know? And I think it's the same thing with grief. It's just like anyone who's lost someone, there's the people you can sit with and then I'll just be there for you. And I think the same thing with animal stuff. Like when you read something terrible and there's a few people on your text thread that you can share it with, but then everyone else is like, don't tell me about this or trying to console you in some way, but like, oh, don't, don't read the news or don't, you know, and it's like, that's not the point. So I think I do want to be confronted with the things. I don't want to avoid it, but it is finding this way of sitting. And I think in this Ashland Creek essay, I point to this. Taoist practice of Wu Wei, which is like sitting in inaction to let confusion and conflict settle out so a deeper wisdom can emerge. So it's not acceptance, but it's just giving space yeah. for that deeper wisdom, which I think is similar to maybe what that person was trying to say yeah. is like the step before the action. And the person who I was talking to about this was my coach, but it, it is satisfying to think about these thoughts in terms of animals and in terms of like how we can be stronger at showing up for others, other marginalized groups. You mentioned that Next of Kin was a spark book for you. What is Next of Kin and was it a spark book for you? Can you expand on that? Sure. So Next of Kin was a book written by Roger Fouts about his relationship with Washoe, the first chimpanzee who acquired sign language. And I read it in college and it was amazing to encounter all these chimps and their lives and their personalities. I think Washoe, she's like a literary animal in the sense of she's a poet. She invented new words for different things. So like swan was water bird and Christmas was sweet tree and the potty was dirty good because it was dirty and good. (laughs) So it was amazing to learn about these animals and their minds. But it was really the sort of the ethical reckoning with animal research at the end of the book that drew me in. And to have someone who was in the sciences and doing this research kind of reject it and say, we shouldn't be doing this was really powerful for me. And I call it a spark book as like a play on like the spark bird, which birders do like, which is your first bird that, you know, and I'm like chickens, you know, (laughs) you know, um, (laughs) but in terms of setting me off on literary animal. I think I was always reading books and then trying to figure out what I want to do with my life 
with it. And so it was in college. And then I read this book and I did a summer in Washington with Roger Fouts and his chimps. And then it inspired me to go to Cameroon to work with chimps who were rescued from the bushmeat trade, which led me to writing an article about it for Satya magazine, Beloved Satya. And so it just felt like reading and writing about books has always been propelling me in my journey as both a writer and an activist. But I call it my spark book because I think it set me on this journey. I love that, uh, just that idea of like your spark animal, your spark book, especially as it relates to animal rights. And that is just really beautiful. So you mentioned that Olga Tokerchuk's Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead is one of your favorites. Tell us about that. Tell us why. Oh, it's magnificent. you know. <laughs> and I don't want to give any spoilers, but it, it is an animal rights book. And you have this older woman or middle-aged, and there's a lot of commentary about that too, like sort of like the power and the invisibility of this age. And again, it is someone who is very sensitive to animals and what's happening to them and attuned to it and paying attention. And that is just, just a fabulous narrator, the character in the story. It has some interesting turns. So I don't want to give them away. I just read an essay of hers. There's a literary journal called Freeman's, and they're closing. But an issue they did last year was an animals issue. Mm-hmm. And she has an essay. And so she's also like a literary animal in this essay. And she's reading... Kutzea and Singer and Jane Goodall and putting them in conversation. And so it's kind of an interesting read. And there's a lot of like meta literary animals where like Kutzea writes this character, Elizabeth Costello, and like can give all these animal rights lectures on her behalf, you know? And she has some interesting musings in that. Yeah. Okay. I'm very intrigued. Definitely very intrigued. (laughs) So what are some other works that you're excited about? So I think in the past few years, some things that were exciting to me were Undrowned by Alexis Pauline Gums. And the subtitle is Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. And it's just a really beautiful meditation on looking at marine mammals as our teachers and in terms of all that they've endured at the hands of humans and climate change and looking to them for teachings of the sea. And it's just beautifully written And she writes about grief and how they carry grief. There's a lot of decolonization of language, too, because she works with these texts that teach us what these animals are. And they're so fraught with white dude explorer syndrome, (laughs) even in terms of what we name them, like the minke is named after a whaler and sort of reclaiming some of that. And so there's just a lot of beautiful things. But my favorite, favorite line in this book is, And what a celebration when we realize our survival need not make us into monsters. And again, she was probably writing about it for a particular context, but I just think it's the most amazing line. And I think that's also an approach that we take. I think so much of the way the world works is like this fraught scarcity mentality, this fraught, like I'm afraid of losing something or nature is something to be conquered. And this notion, like what a celebration when we realize our survival need not make us into monsters. I can't wait for that celebration, you know, like. Yeah, that's really beautiful. What else is exciting you these days? I see your bookshelf, so I know there's many things. Yeah. So the other one is this short story collection, What We Fed to the Manticore by Talia Lakshmi Kalori. 
And it is a series of short stories that are written from various animal perspectives. And she does a fantastic job. I mean, it's tricky. Writing from an animal perspective, just like writing from any other, is hard. How do you get it right? But what I love about Talia's work is it's such a a radical thinking of like these inner lives in this current moment where the outer world is so altered due to humans, but it's not about humans at all. There are some human engagements, but it's imagining these animals and they're inventing their own origin stories that have nothing to do with us. And I write about this on the Literary Animal Substack. There's an essay about vultures, which I thought was just so profound, like looking at this species whose ancestors had a die out because of chemicals that we put into cows that they ate and like their survivors moved to another land. It's some of the same things that I'm working with with my other writer friends about intergenerational memory and intergenerational trauma and all these things. But thinking about it from the perspective of a vulture coming to this new land and being confronted with a mass die out of another species, their role is to eat the dead and the vulture philosophy or whatever is that this is their role, their duty, their gift. But when does this gift become a burden? And so I was just blown away about the consideration of a vulture confronting their own intergenerational trauma and history and mass die out. And then at the same time, witnessing this in another species is just taking it to a different level. And there's an essay about a pigeon at a bird rescue in India. And that one is a very sweet story, too, because it's about how an injured bird learns to get her confidence to fly again. All of that is just really wonderful. And I'm excited because with the Literary Animal Project, we have an upcoming event on Zoom, which will air before this podcast does, but there'll be a recording of it. I'm inviting her and two other writers, Rajiv Mohabir and Shruti Swami, to talk about whales. And she has a beautiful whale essay too, which is also like how you capture whale song on the page or ship noise on the page and interruptions. All of that is really interesting to me. And I think she does a lot of trying to understand the senses of the animals based on research like Ed Young's work or other people's work of how animals perceive the world. And then how do we write about animals, that sort of sensibility. I'm really excited about that. There's been like a big of a whale kick. Rebecca Giggs has a really wonderful book, Fathoms, which is a really great whale nonfiction book. The other literary animal that I love is Talia Field. There's two books that I really recommend. One is Experimental Animals. It is an amazing book because it's a novel about vivisection and it's set with the origins of vivisection where you have the founder of vivisection, Cloud Bernard. It's written from the perspective of his wife, who was an anti-vivisector. And it's that era where vivisection, feminism, anti-abolition, they're all like sort of linked together. And so she's writing a letter to Anna Kingsford, who was another real life anti-vivisection activist. What Talia Field does so brilliantly is using the archive to write stories about who is neglected in the archive, which is women and animals and activists. And so she's using all the real archives of the real vivisector and Darwin and all these scientists and their conversations with each other. And then this imagined letter of this woman who's not in the archive and putting together things. The things that I found that were so fascinating, you had all of these women who are trying to protect the stray dogs in France from getting vivisected. And so they divided the city up at night and took neighborhoods to collect dogs and take them to safety. That was really fascinating to read about. 
And there's also a point, again, she's bringing in all this real archival research. So there's a letter from the French Animal Protection Society to a German Animal Protection Society saying, our countries are not getting along, but can we get along to take care of the horses that are fighting? So I don't know. I think she's doing a lot of really fascinating work. And her other book, Personhood, I think you guys would really love to. There's a book, the, the opening essay is, is narrated from a parrot at a wild bird sanctuary. And also sort of like a little bit of the insanity that results from the trauma of their lives. There's another essay about Happy the Elephant, which I think you both would really love. And again, she's does such a good job. She is a playwright by background. So she does a really good job of excerpting these things and putting them in conversation. So she has real stuff from the Non-Human Rights Project and court cases populating this essay about Happy. So in terms of doing innovative things in the field with animals, I think she's brilliant. And there's books that I think are total animal books that haven't been talked about as animal books, like Ocean Vuong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous. It is just a gorgeous book that is written as a letter to his mother, and it talks about so many things, but animals are all throughout it. And I was listening to a talk that he did with Kwasu, and there was one of us in the audience that was like, hey, are you vegan? And if so, how did it affect your writing? He answered the first question, and it was just more like a technical is like, yes, I'm vegan, but sometimes I make exceptions when my sister makes me something and she forgets that fish sauce isn't vegan or something. And th that was kind of like the least interesting question, right? The more interesting question was the second question, and how does it affect your writing? He's like, oh, it affects my writing all the time. There's animals all over this book. And he wanted to show the parallels of what we do to animals and what we do to ourselves. And so it was just really interesting to hear him talk about it in that way, too, because I just sensed it. And it's a book that is a brilliant book and has it has so many, many, many themes. But I tune into this one in particular, and it was really nice to see that it was intentional on his part, too. I actually went to a Jonathan Safran Forer talk several years ago, and it was about a new novel he had, and there was like a talk back, and so I raised my hand and I asked something very similar. Like, of course, you're very well known for writing Eating Animals. How has your understanding of what happens to animals behind closed doors influenced the rest of your writing, such as your fiction writing? And he completely didn't answer it. He said, for those of you who don't know, and then he explained eating animals and then he just rambled and it had nothing at all to do with my question at all. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I threw him because the talkback was specifically for this book, but yeah, Jonathan Severn for like in my mind, what a huge disappointment. Like you write a book that is single-handedly responsible for more people going vegan. I would say... Anecdotally speaking, there are five books that I can point to that a lot of guests that I've interviewed throughout the years have pointed to as the book that made them go vegan. And that is by far one of the biggest, like one of the top five. And then he's now vegan. So you mentioned uh, a book in progress that you have. Is that Governing Bodies? It is. Yeah. So I call Governing Bodies a sort of lyrical reckoning of the way bodies are controlled and liberated, whether it be human, animal, or water. It is part a personal story, a family history. I had mentioned before that it's a project that was born in grief after my father's death. And my father, like our hen house listeners, had a real sensitivity to the world and the animals. And when I lost him, I was sort of searching for more 
connection and family history. And he had grown up in this sort of utopian experiment in India where my grandfather was a civil engineer like I was who quit to join the freedom movement in India. And they had this sort of childhood that, you know, they were spinning their own cotton and it was sort of rooted in a very nonviolent practice and compassion to animals. And so much of it was sort of like a quest to find Kalakuchi, this place. And then I think over the years, I realized Kalakuchi was more than just this place. It was like this idea. And I was looking not just like the lineages that are in my family, but these lineages of ideas of thought. So it just has taken me to a lot of different places in terms of time. I mentioned the Sangam poets and there's my namesake, Sangamithra. She's named after King Ashoka's daughter. And King Ashoka was this king who was very violent, but then had this radical transformation and became a king of peace. And he had these edicts sprinkled all over India that were about compassion to animals and peace. There were secular, you know, like religious tolerance and equality and a lot of really great principles, but they were also sort of forgotten about. They were in an ancient script. And so they're permanent, but their story was sort of rediscovered many years later. I think in writing this book, I just kept seeing this sort of pattern of things coming and going and returning. And these histories, like these Sangam poets, they lived in an area that was twice followed by the sea. So sometimes it's kind of amazing. Like I'm reading about them at the New York Public Library, which is a site of a former drinking water reservoir. And I'm reading about this elephant, like a boat in a waterless river on top of this waterless reservoir. And it's kind of amazing, all the labors that were in place for me to even have access to this old story. So a lot of it is about that. And I think I'll talk a little bit more about, I call this book a katina. And a katina is a chain of linked texts. And it's sort of an homage to what I'm calling the OG Katina, which is Howard Williams wrote this book, The Ethics of Diet in the Late 19th Century. So I encountered this book and the subtitle, A Katina of Authorities, Deprecatory of the Practice of Flesh Eating. is like, that's a title. But the word Katina was really striking to me because I feel like it gave me language for what I'm doing in terms of like a chain of linked texts. My background is in sort of geotechnical engineering and a katina in soil science is these series of soil layers down a slope, like each are unique, but connected or distinct, but connected. It's sort of an homage because I feel like all of us are sort of extending this katina of thought. So I'm sort of working through that. And I think the first two parts are a little more backwards looking. And the third part is more contemporary and chronicling of this moment and trying to leave the archive that I've been looking for, for the future, sort of this archive of the not infernos amongst the infernos. Wow. That's amazing. And I know that we're going to be lucky enough to be treated to you reading an excerpt from that for our bonus content today, right? Yes, sure. Yay. Oh, good. I'm so excited about that. Before we close, you wrote recently about Karen Davis, who, of course, recently died, which is very sad. She was quite the, speaking of OG, quite an OG activist. (laughs) Can you share some of your thoughts about her? Yeah. So I wrote a post about her and I was reflecting on what I remembered. I remembered her doing this campaign against This American Life because they had this poultry slam and it was just dumb stories about chickens and turkeys and she called them out on it. And Ira Glass had invited her to come and she's like, no, you come here. And I think that was like the most brilliant move because 
it put him in the position of meeting her chickens. And I think that was really transformative. So I think about that too, in terms of literary animals, how we can kind of recreate that moment. Because when he's there, he realizes that the show was wrong and that these are not dumb birds and they are very unique and they're sweet. Then years later, he goes on Letterman and he kind of recounts that story. And the way he recounts it, it's still like kind of jokey and ridicule. And, and they're like, oh, these poultry activists. And there's a disdain in it. But then Letterman's like, does that change you? He's like, yeah. Every time I picked up chicken, I was thinking about the quiet ones and the shy ones and the outgoing ones. And then it became the last and I became a vegetarian because of that woman. And so I think about that too. Her activism was really great because she got him to the place and then the chickens did the rest, you know? So I thought that was really wonderful. And I've been spending some time with her books and the latest is for the birds and just understanding her as a literary animal because she's prolific. She has a PhD in English or literature. She came to this with deep scholarship on Soviet prisons and the Holocaust. And that sort of had a lens into how she looked at industrial animal agriculture. She also felt comforted in reading these sort of dark, somber novels. But bringing it back to the Katina, what made her a vegetarian was reading Tolstoy's essay, The First Step, which is the introduction to, like he penned the Russian introduction to Howard Williams's Ethics of Diet. So that essay affected Karen Davis, who affected Ira Glass and so many others. And so I just think about that and the power of literature. Our stories matter. These essays matter. And you have no idea the reach of your words. And they can be centuries later and keep going. So that part was, it was pretty powerful for me. Love that. What a beautiful way of ending this part of our chat today, Sengu. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. I'd love to link to some of these books in our show notes, if that's okay with you. And certainly we will also be linking to your work. Tell our listeners how they can subscribe. Sure. It's literaryanimal.substack.com. On Instagram, it's at literaryanimals with an S. That's the best way to keep in touch with the news and we'll have some events and then I'll figure out a place where we can archive some of these conversations. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today on our Hen House. It's been really fascinating and I'm excited about continuing to learn about what you're excited about. Yeah, thank you so much. It's that time of year. Start spreading the news about all the reasons to say no to animal gifting campaigns like those promoted by Heifer International, Oxfam, World Vision, and so many others, and support plant-based feeding gifts instead. A well-fed world runs a program called Plants for Hunger, it's the number four, which is a plant-based hunger relief program that feeds people while protecting animals and the planet. Instead of using animal-based foods or gifting live animals, your donation supports plant-based food and farming projects serving some of the world's most impoverished communities. And it's not just gifts. While designed as a gift donation program, you can also just donate directly, once or recurring. All styles are critically important and tremendously appreciated. Visit plantsforhunger.org to find out more. That's Plants for Hunger with the number four. Anxieties are rising. Our first story this week is from Watt Poultry. Uh, proposed EFSA regulations threaten EU broiler 
producers. Obviously, as you can see, this is about Europe. And uh, the, the tagline here is, if accepted as proposed, these new regulations would switch the EU from a net exporter to an importer of chicken meat. Oh, my God. Starts off with a quote from one Jan Henriksen, who is the CEO of Aviagen Broiler Breeder Group. Europe doesn't like agriculture anymore. As always, you know, they like to lump in... Uh, all food growing, all production of food. If you're against chicken, if torturing chickens, you're against the production of food. All right. So what they're talking about here is this European Food Safety Authority proposal. Uh, it's not a regulation yet. So they're uh, gearing up to fight it. To limit broiler growth rates to no more than 50 grams per day and reduce stocking density to no more than 30 kilograms per square meter of floor space, which still sounds pretty crowded to me. And of course, this is trying to address the absolute disgraceful situation in the production of quote-unquote broilers, chickens that people eat, where they grow too fast. Uh, they grow insanely fast. So, you know, they're ready for slaughter at six weeks old, still peeping, not clucking yet. And uh, and they're crowded into these warehouses. And, you know, they're not in cages. They like to say all the time that they're not in cages. They have never been in cages. That's only egg-laying hens. All right, so Henriksen went on to say that the EU currently produces 13% more chicken meat than it consumes, but that adoption of the proposed regulation was re result in EU farmers only producing 63% of the current EU consumption of chicken. That is a big drop. You can imagine how crowded they are now. They're upset about this. They want themselves to be making the money. They want themselves to be producing as much chicken and to keep people from moving away from chicken because it becomes more expensive and moving to plant-based proteins. They want it all. And, you know, they're willing to lie to get it. According to Henriksen, birds of today have good welfare now. Yeah, right. The birds out there today have never been better. How often have you heard them say things like that? But we still have image issues to work on. Yeah, that's exactly their approach to this. Don't fix anything, just change the way it looks. And that's what they're going to try to do. He wants them to invest more in biosecurity in the future, but not to vaccinate the birds. For some reason, they're totally against that, so that probably is expensive or something. And he urged poultry producers to stay close to your politicians since they really don't know what they are doing when it comes to agriculture. And you know what? As I will say in, in my next article, that is really good advice for us to take as well. This article is from Hordes Dairyman. And the name of it is My Experience Lobbying. And this is by Erin Massey. And she says that bringing our issues to lawmakers' attention is the only way they will know what we are facing. And, you know, this isn't really arising anxieties. I just thought it was just full of really, really, really good advice for all of us. We have to get more familiar with hanging out with, I mean, you know, obviously the people from the industry have an easier time getting in, but really anybody can get in. You might not you know, might not be able to see the, the actual legislator, but you'll be able to talk to their staff and their staff is who they rely on. They have to hear from us anyway. That's what she's saying to, to, to. She was saying she was reminded recently of her experience lobbying in Washington, D.C. And prior to the time that she spent on the Hill, she thought that, that lobbying was known only for its notorious association with corruption. So she had a good view of government. I admit that many of us don't review of government, but notorious association with corruption. It seemed like money and power were needed to buy influence. Well, yeah, that is true, isn't it? Fortunately for them, they've got money and influence. 
However, our direct involvement, she's talking about herself and a colleague, each showed us a different perspective. Yeah, she's going in there from the dairy industry. She has no uh, clout. We, we learned that lawmakers are not omniscient, as so many of us may have assumed. Like, who assumed that lawmakers were omniscient? All right, that's really not that relevant. But but really, they're definitely not, as we all know. There are so many issues across a vast breadth of people and industries that they may not even be aware of without having been approached and met with to discuss. And that, you know, nobody in the world is allows themselves to be aware of what's happening to animals. And and if we don't tell them, they're not going to become aware because they don't want to be aware. And especially lawmakers don't want to be aware because they don't want to piss people off. So, you know, excellent advice here. All right. Lawmakers rely on their team to help gather insight and feedback, yet there are still limitations. The only way you can be sure they know what issues we face is to show up at their door. Yeah, she's right. As a dairy girl, <laughs> A dairy girl. It's like she skips down with her buckets every morning. I don't know. What may seem obvious to me is often not even on other people's radar. Totally true of us. What seems obvious to us is not on their radar. And she goes on to say, this is why it is so important to have subject matter experts and people who live these experiences every day in the offices of those making decisions that affect us. Well, we can't exactly be the people who live these experiences because the animals are the ones who are living these experiences, but we know about them and we can talk about them. And she goes on to say, they need to hear it from us. Yeah, exactly. You better believe they are hearing it from the other side. By that, she means us. And you better believe they are not. They have their ears closed and they are not here. You know, there's a gazillion of them and they have a gazillion dollars. There's just us. That's where all the animals have. You know, this isn't just in Congress. This is at every level. So if you have the opportunity to speak up, she says, do it. I couldn't agree more. It turns out that telling your story is not a deal with the devil. I had not thought it was. Lobbying, in my experience, is simply bringing awareness of the priorities and needs of our community to lawmakers. Yeah. Excellent advice. Please. I hope, I hope you all take it. You know, I, I'm the shyest person I know and I don't like having to talk to people. I, I hate having to talk to people, but, but it's so worth it. And you know, it's their job to be nice to you. Oh, let's all lobby this year. Let's all, you know, that could be a new year's resolution. All right. Perspective. We make sacrifices in all conditions for our animals. This is my third article. This is from Ag Daily by Kelsey Pagel. She is a, a rancher, I guess a rancher. In Northeast Kansas, she's dismayed because it's already snowed. She doesn't like snow. And this is all about how hard her life is. It probably is. Like, it's a lot of work taking care of a ranch or a farm. And she says, the moisture is nice since we're in a multiple year drought, but why can't it come in the form of rain when the temperature is above 15 degrees? She apparently hates the cold, which, you know, probably keeps her from having to worry about climate change too much. But she has come to the realization there's a direct correlation between people who love snow and people that don't have livestock. We grew up with livestock, pigs and cattle. And then she goes on about how brutally hard her childhood was. We literally grew up on the four wheeler in bad weather and in good. We learned how to layer clothes to keep warm. Oh my God, the brutality of it all. We were bringing calves in as fast as they were born to the farrowing house. We were on a four-wheeler from before sunup to past dark, trying to save as many as we could. It was a rough few days. It was all about the cattle. That's her real point here. 
Like their lives are so hard because all they care about are these animals. And you know what? It would be better if they wouldn't have to care about the animals, if they would stop raising them and slitting their throats and eating them. Then they could, you know, go to the movies instead. Like, like this is so fixable. If you have livestock, you have a similar story, she says. They are always the most important, no matter what you have going on. You know, she acts like <laughs> acts like she's running an animal shelter and, and she's doing this out of the goodness of her heart. It doesn't matter the temperature or weather conditions or whether you are sick or not, the livestock have to be taken care of. Yeah, because all your money is, is in them. She means it. You know, this is the thing that's been haunting me lately. Like, I just... You know, there's so much evil in the world and there's so many people doing all this evil and it's so hard to tell the difference between the ones who who are just cynical and who are just, you know, saying it and the ones who really believe their own bullshit. I think she's a believer. I I don't know why. I don't know her. But uh, I think a lot of them are believers. Really crazy. Non-livestock owners, she goes to say, don't understand why you can't just ignore it or do it later or have it already taken care of. Actually, yeah, I don't own any livestock and I do understand why you can't just ignore it. Like, they're living creatures. Like, I don't understand how you can ignore the fact that you're going to slit their throats. It makes you question your sanity. Maybe you should question your sanity. Why do we have livestock? Maybe you should ask that question. This is a very good question. Life would be so much easier without it would. You're absolutely right. Not only do you have all the problems that having livestock comes with, but you're also constantly attacked or questioned by people who don't understand the livestock world. You don't sound like you understand the livestock world either. Like my mom tells us, it's about providing the best possible life we can for the livestock in our care. Actually, it's about making a living like you can make living in other ways. Unbelievable. People are just unbelievable. I don't understand the human race. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you enjoy the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We understand that not everyone is in a position to contribute financially. And of course, I love you all no matter what, but we have had a rather challenging year. So if you are able, we could really use your help. And this is the perfect time to make a donation because between now and December 31st, all contributions will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000 if we make it to the 25,000. And so listen to me, we have so many exciting announcements. We have revamped our membership options. We would be totally honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. So visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our new tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can be a part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or of course our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include weekly bonus content, access to our engaging flock exclusive spaces in our online community, and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me live in the audience for a virtual recording of an Our Hen House podcast interview where you can meet the guest and ask questions for the bonus segment. 
And listen, also, since we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you appreciate our henhouse, and if you believe in our mission to mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, and if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of independent media, please make a donation before December 31st, and your donation will be matched. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated and tax deductible to the full extent of the law. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash support. That's ourhenhouse.org slash support. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us and leave reviews where you are able to on social media. Just find us at Our Hen House. And if you're one of the listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Walenska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so, so much for your support, your compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.